Good morning, church. And Ryan's going to bring the word today, too. So I'm That's okay. Ryan's got the word. I'm on He's the spot. Got, they got it from here on out. Yeah, unless I take over. You can do that. That's all right. Just kidding. It would not be the first time. <laughs> And it, and that's hey, a positive hey, hey, thing. I'm hey. sorry. Good morning, y'all. It's so good to be here. Uh, Pastor Chris, Lisa, please know the feeling is mutual. Um, I can say, not, not to compare, because we shouldn't do that. But um, if I were a comparing girl, I would say that we feel so very loved by you. Every time that we see you, every time that we are here in this congregation, Y'all, I can, I can tell you of the four times, every single time, something that um, has come out of this place that I carry with me for the next four or five years. The last pl- time that we were here, I know this sounds totally crazy to y'all, but um, we received a gift basket. And in that gift basket, I got a travel case and a makeup bag that I still use to this day. And every time that I pull it out, I thank the Lord for Hope Crossings Church. And I ask that the Lord will continue to bless people here with silly stuff that they can carry with them because it's not silly because those are things that help care for us in whatever journey we're on. You guys are doing that, man. I, I think about um, this word of support. You know, if, if this, for example, didn't have this rod, this metal piece here, what would it make this? Right, it would make it on the floor. It would make it a particle situation wood on the floor. It, it requires the support to be able to complete its purpose and do what it's supposed to do. We could not be in Columbia if it weren't for the support of you guys. Thank you so much for letting us be your arm extended, your, your feet sometimes, your hands sometimes, your hugs sometimes. In Columbia, you guys might not be there physically, but you are. You're planting and you're seeding, you're put, planting seeds that are, are making an impact, not because Ryan and I are something special, but because we're all part of the kingdom. So thank you. Thank you for making us as a family feel so loved. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for believing in us when we were a couple of snot-nosed kids that didn't know what we were doing. Um, thank you for continuing to be that support that makes possible what the Lord has called us to do. So please know that we love you, and we feel so blessed and so loved by you. Um, God bless you guys. Yeah, I should just let her preach. I know. I know what you're all thinking. Let her keep talking. She is uh, a wonderful. We have a wonderful family. Our daughter, Sibylla, and the other two are back enjoying Children's Church like they do every, every Sunday. And we could probably just go on and on about how we feel when we think about Hope Crossings, your pastors, and every time we get to come back. One thing, though, that I think of often is uncertainty. Uh, Has anybody felt uncertainty over the past year? (laughs) Yeah, maybe right now we feel a little bit of uncertainty about the future, about what's happening. But I think back on moments in our life and, you know, they coincide with these times of uncertainty of not knowing what's next. When we started off as missionaries, as, as Caitlin mentioned We were very young. We're still young. She's younger, but we're still young. But we've been doing this for 16 years now. We've been we've been missionaries to the country of Colombia. And so you you do the math and subtract 16 years and we don't have any children. And here we are, people that say that God has called us to do something, uh, but a lot of uncertainty 
a lot of uncertainty in our, in, in our ability, uh, which, which over the years we've learned it's not about our ability, it's about obedience to the Lord. And, and in those moments when we came, just uh, the feeling is so mutual because we were so encouraged by the way that Hope Crossings just joined with us from the beginning in spite of never having proved a thing. And, and so those are, the, those are the moments that move you forward. And I was telling Pastor Chris, you know, Sibylla, she was born in Colombia with some health problems. Uh, at the end of our first term, and she was born there, and we had to leave everything and come back to the States uh, in 2009. Uh, she, she had some health problems. She has overcome those and is a growing. She's going to be taller than I am very soon. But I remember that we, we were in uh, Eggleston Hospital for two months after we arrived back from Columbia. We were living in the hospital, never even unpacked our bags when we got back from Columbia, but part of coming back is always visiting the churches that support you and that pray for you and that send you. And, and to be really honest, at that moment with our first child going through health issues, the uncertainty that surrounded what was going to happen could have probably easily derailed us from the path that we believe that the Lord has put us on. And the first service that we had after that was, was I think it was at the Civic Center. And I remember going in there and we had Sibylla in, a little, in her little stroller, but we had to go everywhere. She had a feeding tube. And so we had this whole get up that we would take, take with her. And just remembering that those were the first steps that got us back on track after dealing with so much uncertainty and, and, and pain and difficulty that happens to all of us in life. It happens to all of us. And it's happened to many people over the course of the past year. And, and while we face uncertainty, and, and those that don't know Jesus have faced even more uncertainty, what we've seen is an opportunity. We've seen an opportunity for uh, the answer that, that overcomes all uncertainty uh, to enter people's lives. And I don't know what your story has been over the past year or the past uh, right now as we speak, but I know in Colombia, uh, the whole situation over the last year made things challenging for sure, challenging of what's next. And you know, last week at Easter Sunday, I can imagine what Easter Sunday was like here. I can imagine what you talked about on Easter Sunday, the resurrection, most likely. Uh, even if it wasn't the main point of the sermon, I, I'm sure that you thought about the resurrection of Christ over the course of the last week. Maybe even this week you've continued to think on that. And I'm reminded of a portion of scripture just after the resurrection. Uh, where Jesus finds his disciples. And so this morning, what I would like to do is, is just share a little bit out of uh, the book of John and, and then maybe a little bit in the book of Acts, uh, depending on how the time goes here. And, and I want to just look at where Jesus found his disciples just after he paid the ultimate price, just after he conquered the grave, just after, after he made the way for you and I to enter into a relationship with him uh, that would uh, bring us the forgiveness of sins. So if you have your Bibles, join me, please, in, in John uh, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 20, excuse me, verse 19. Look with me here at these, these few verses. And I want you to just think about all that Jesus had done, okay? Let me, I just want to re give a little context before we read these verses here in, in John chapter 20, verse 19. Think of all that Jesus has done with his disciples, bringing them to uh, this point, bringing them to, uh, taking them with him to the Last Supper, uh, and then leaving them to go to the cross, and, and then uh, raising from the grave, having conquered death. The disciples were the people who most closely could understand, supposedly, because of the time they spent with him, what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. 
You know, if I were Jesus, these were the people that I would be expecting to have it all together and have it very clear based off of all that I had taught them to know what comes next in this mission. But look at where Jesus finds his disciples in these few verses. Verse 19 says this, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... So the first day of the week, this is the, literally the day, the evening of the resurrection. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I put myself in the shoes of the disciples, and I try to think of what they must have thought when they saw Jesus pay the price on the cross. They they didn't have clear the understanding of just what it was Jesus was doing on that cross. And so in spite of dedicating the probably around three years of their lives to understanding the way of Jesus, understanding what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, having seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle, uh, having seen uh, Jesus share the message of life that he brings both with Jews and people that were not Jewish. Having seen all that, the resu- the, 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 not the, they're not thinking of the resurrection, but comes the moment of giving his life on the cross. And where do the disciples go? They go to this place of uncertainty. I imagine that they were locked in this room and, you know, they didn't have glass windows, but probably had those like door, wooden doors that I imagine them having that closed. Maybe there's a candlelight inside this room where the the disciples are huddled together beneath so much uncertainty, asking questions like, why did we ever stop fishing? Why did I stop collecting taxes? Why did I stop doing this or that? We had a pretty decent business before Jesus came along and we spent three years with him thinking that we were going to change the world, thinking that we were bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. I imagine that they were so jumpy that even the lightest knock on the door had them, you know, looking around what's happening, probably had sweaty palms because the Bible tells us that they were in this room together, not because they were sure of their purpose, not because they were certain of their future, not because they had a mission, but because they were in fear. They were living in fear that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. I remember just over a year ago when this whole chapter of history started and the uncertainty that came in. We were scheduled to come back to the States in June. And so things started unfolding and I start thinking things like, will I get to see my grandparents again? Will I get to see my aunts and uncles again? Will I get to see my parents again? And these things that bring fear into our life, they can be debilitating. And so I started thinking about that and then a little eager to get back to the United States to be able to see people. And then our borders closed in Colombia. No flights, no national flights, no international flights. And so we just stayed. We stayed locked in our house for six months because every Sunday the president would get on and did a great job managing and still continues to do a great job managing the difficulties of of this pandemic in the country of Colombia, but he'd get up and he'd say, we're going to be in isolation for another week, for another week. And so that lasted from March until July 
where me and Caitlin could go outside one day a week uh, with our, uh, depending on the number on our ID. And so in, in all of this uncertainty, and I read this story of the disciples, and it just, I feel like it relates so well to what so many people have dealt with over the previous uh, year. And then we started to see very quickly how the Lord was using this to bring people to him. About a week after uh, things got closed down, Caitlin started a new small group for, for ladies, university students, and uh, one student connected that we didn't, have never met in person uh, was an invitation from another student on a Zoom meeting, didn't turn on her camera, didn't turn on her microphone. They go through about an hour to an hour and a half of, a, of talking about forgiveness was the topic of the small group. And sometimes you wonder when you're doing these things, what in the world is that person even connected for? And they're getting ready to close or praying and they hear a voice come through the computer that says, what if it's too hard to forgive? What if it's too hard to forgive? And so Caitlin and the other leader that were part of this group asked the question and the girl began to share her story. She had been raped and abused. Her brother had been murdered two years previously. And so what if it's too difficult to forgive all of a sudden became a question that you don't even have an answer for. You can't tell out of your own experience how to forgive when someone's dealt with such tragedy and difficulty. All we can do is point him to the hope we have in Jesus. And so the words Jesus says to the disciples and the words Jesus says to us and the words that Jesus says to that young lady connected on that Zoom meeting is when he walks in the room, he says, peace be with you. When we think about peace, I think about a lack of war. You know, we live in a country that many times there's different conflicts going on and across the globe you can see that. I think about peace as, a, as no war or just being in good terms. But, but this word has so much meaning that I want to use a little video that I brought that explains a little bit about the depth of meaning of this word so that we can understand just what this moment means in the story of Jesus and his disciples. So if we could put that video on. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. 
The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. So what Jesus wants his disciples to understand when he enters this room of so much uncertainty and so much fear is that he has brought peace for the first time in thousands of years. What the Jewish people had waited for, what we celebrated last Sunday for the lives of the disciples and every one of us from that point until we are with him again is that he enters our life and he completes our life and brings us to peace regardless of the circumstances. That's how you and I, as followers of Christ, in spite of the difficulties that we've all seen, can still be a place of hope, of encouragement, and peace to those that are around us. There's been no better time to be a Christian on mission than the last year because so much uncertainty has brought us to a place where the only answer, the only answer that can penetrate the pain, the uncertainty, the fear, is the peace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You have that if you have decided to follow Jesus. It doesn't stop there though. Look how quickly we go from the answer to the uncertainty and the fear that we celebrated last Sunday across the globe really to a place of mission. Look what happens in these same verses. I'm gonna read really quickly through here. So we go from Jesus coming and completing the disciples, helping them to understand, look, I paid the price so you don't have to cower in a room anymore. It doesn't matter what they do to you. It doesn't matter, maybe they will. And we know from, the, from church history that all the disciples paid a price for following Jesus. But guess what? It no longer became the thing that controlled the decisions of their life because they realized that if I have Jesus and the peace that comes in Jesus, the completeness, everything we just saw, then I can continue on regardless of the circumstances. Look where he takes them right after that. He's there with them and look, verse 21, again he says it to them, peace be with you and immediately as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, me, I am sending you. 
When we decide to follow Jesus, you don't have to wait for a second opportunity or calling or decision to understand that you have a place in God's mission. It is literally in the same breath that Jesus tells us, I am your peace. I am here to complete you. And as I have been sent, so I am sending you. But, but guess what? He understands that from Easter to Pentecost, uh, that, that we may have this assurance in who Jesus is, but we don't have really <laughs> the ability or the understanding or the know-how to carry out his mission. Think about this. The disciples who had trained for three years with Jesus, do you know what he told them at, when he gave the Great Commission, go to Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth? He said, but wait. All of your preparation, everything you've ever seen me do or participated in is insufficient if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And in these same verses, listen, verse 22, and with, the, with, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that you and I are incapable to living up to the example that he left us. He knows that the disciples were not capable to live up to the example that he had given them in person. And so he goes a step farther than saving our lives. He gives us the tool we need in order to live that life. He gives us the tool we need in order to, to fulfill all that he's asked us to do. He gives us what we need in order to be sent the way that the Father had sent him. You can quickly see the consequences, the results of this moment in the disciples' life. Look, if, if, you have, if your Bible's like mine, uh, literally on the next page, uh, the book of Acts Chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to this place we find the disciples in after they've been reminded of peace in Jesus, after they've been told that the, the Holy Spirit is, is coming. Listen to what it says, Acts 1, 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They went from a place that they were huddled together in fear to a place huddled together in prayer because they knew, they knew not because they were smart enough to understand it. They, they, they weren't. But they knew because Jesus had walked into that room. He had said, I am your peace. And he had breathed the Holy Spirit on them. They were with anticipation for what was to come next. Because they were finally starting to understand what it would mean to do what Jesus had done in those years that he walked with them. And I want to close here looking at the second chapter of Acts. Look at what happens as they're waiting in anticipation with an understanding of what's to come next. Nothing had changed about their situation. Not one thing had changed. What had taken them to a place of fear in that room still existed. They would still, at the end of their lives, they would be persecuted for having followed Jesus, but their whole mind shifted, their whole mentality changed, their whole focus, their vision changed. And look what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. They're all there waiting, expectant of what is to happen. The Holy Spirit comes, and look what the result is of this moment. Listen, it says in verse 5, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Liter utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of, them hears, each of us hears them in our own native language? 
And he goes on to list, I'm not going to take the time to list every nation, but there are more than 16 people groups represented that hear the message of salvation in their own language because, because the disciples finally understood it has nothing to do with what we can bring to the table. It has to do with understanding what a relation with Jesus really means and what the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is for. Jesus takes the disciples from saving their souls from fear and uncertainty to a place of mission in one breath. As his church, that's what he's called us to do. I love Easter Sunday. I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. It's like I've heard people talk about, you know, it's the main event. It's celebrated very different in Colombia because the culture is very different. And so it's not a big deal really in Colombia because other religious groups make it a big deal. So we've almost erred on the other side of the, the pendulum is swaying the other way and, and it's really not a big deal and I lament it many times. The one thing I, I do love about how we celebrate in Colombia is that every single Sunday there is a focus on the only way we continue forward is if we have the peace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so can we go from Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate what he paid on the cross and honor Jesus and honor our Heavenly Father through our actions, participating in his mission, moving out of this place of uncertainty and fear. I, about two years ago, three years ago, we started the ministry, the university ministry. What we do is we started just on one local campus where we live because God opened the doors in a time of uncertainty and desperation is how the university ministry in Columbia started. We were desperate. We were broke. Caitlin started selling cupcakes to try to make ends meet. And it's in that place that the Lord started a ministry, a time of total uncertainty, where we had to depend on God. And, and as the years have gone by, the Lord has blessed, blessed us in order to be able to, to take the ministry to other parts of Columbia. And, and now we have the privilege of, of trying to reach university campuses, partnering with local churches all across the nation of Columbia. We have 46 million people. We have over 2 million university students. We've targeted 40 cities that have at least 10,000 university students. That's our long-term vision and our goal, but guess what? Every time we go to a new place, there's uncertainty. Three years ago, we went to a city called Tuluá. We got to the city. It's a private university. We get on the steps, and we are sitting there, and we're trying to get in. They won't let us in. And I talked to the, the guard there that's at the gate, and he, he lets me get in. I go and I speak to a faculty member. I thought they were going to kick us out. It's technically illegal to evangelize, proselytize, whatever, on campus. But I meet with the one administrator who's a Christian. And he looks across at me and he says, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, all right, we're going to have your group come on. And you're just going to do some things, play some games, have some fellowship time. Okay, so we get on there. We had hundreds of students out there playing volleyball with those huge, like, six-foot balls. It was a blast. There was one student who stood along the side the entire time. And when we would break out of, the, out of the, uh, the fun time, we'd do small groups. He would never join one. And he sat there with his arms crossed, and he walked up to me the first day with his arms crossed. He said, I know what you're doing. I want you to know that I'm an atheist, but I've had a good time today. Can I hang out with you guys the rest of the week? I said, absolutely. You're welcome to. Every single time we were on campus, he joined us, except when it was time to talk about Jesus. And he would just stay off at the side. He would appear at restaurants in this little town. We'd walk from the campus to other restaurants. He would just appear. He was always following us. And we got to the end of the week, and it was the last day. We were saying goodbyes. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, we're going to be in the church, 
that we're partnering with, and we're going to have a devotional time and a kind of a goodbye time, debrief. He said, well, can I come by to say goodbye? I said, sure. So we're at the church the following day, and he hasn't showed up. We're finishing the devotional, and we like to do something with our team, the students and everybody that come. We, we put a chair in the middle, and, and it's kind of affirm people, and you talk about the cool ways that the Lord has allowed you to be a part of his mission. They're sharing stories, and we get to the end, and I hear a banging at the door. I hear a banging at the door, and, and I go looking, and it's the wrong door. It's a garage door because this church is like three houses that have been put together. And I open it, and there is this young man. And he says, have I missed the whole thing? And I said, no, we're just saying goodbye. He comes in. He sits down. The last person goes. We pray. We're about to get up, and he says, can I say something? And, you know, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> you really never know what's going to happen. And I say, yeah, sure. And he says, you know what? When I met you guys this week, I'm, he said, I'm from another city. I tried to kill myself two weeks ago. And I have no friends. He said, I have no friends and I don't know anybody. He said, the first day I told you I was an atheist and if I could just hang out. And she said, I could. He said, I don't know why you guys have done that. And I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me the right words to say for that young man. And I said to him, it is not us. It's who is in us. Only because of the love we have in Jesus do we reach out to you and say, come on, however you want to. He said, I want that. And right in the middle of all of us, he decided to give his life to the Lord. Yeah. It didn't start very well. It started in a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear. But if we're willing to obey the Lord in spite of the uncertainty and trust that he has the answer for every person that he's put around us, he sent us on mission. There's no question. He says, I'm your peace. And as the Father sent me, I send you. Some of us, he sends to another country. Some of us, he sends to our own backyard, our own household. And so what I just want to leave you with uh, this morning, who has he sent you to?